Um, well, good morning. I'm so glad you're all here and able to be here this morning for our last of six um, in a not really a series, but sort of a series on the Holy Spirit. So as we begin this morning, let's begin with prayer. Dear Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your great love for us and for the way you manifest your love, for the way you, Lord Jesus Christ, um, came to purchase us, to buy us back from sin and death, um, to redeem us by your blood, and to give us the hope of glory, of eternal life. And we thank you, Father, also for the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, the one who enlivens us, the one who refreshes us, the one who renews us and restores us. Um, once again, as we fall down on our knees in repentance, day by day, restores us into fellowship with you. And so we ask now, Lord, spring up a well within each one of our hearts, even as we hear and learn about the Holy Spirit, and refresh our minds, Lord, that we would have eyes to see all of the ways in which you are at work in our lives today in expectation of eternity. So we ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as I mentioned, this is actually part six, sort of, of six, but you don't have to have been here for all one through five prior classes because I kind of give you a summary each time. And the ladies in my Friday morning Bible study know this. So if they miss, that first really 15 minutes are re- recovery, you know, recap of what we have said before. And they probably get sick of hearing me say the same things over and over again. But I think it's helpful for just remembering and reinforcing what have we learned What have we looked at in the past, and how does that inform and help us for today and what we're looking at today? So um, part part one, we looked at the Trinity and how the Holy Spirit as the third member of the Trinity um, is really a part of this community of God who is three persons, one God, all of the same substance and nature um, being divine and who are very distinct as distinctive persons and yet unified. And the one really big takeaway, two takeaways from that, number one, that the doctrine of the Trinity, which we often try to go around and around on trying to understand in our heads, and it's the worst thing to try to introduce to a newborn Christian. It's like, and then there's the Trinity, and you explain it, and the bottom line is always, it's a mystery. Um, So you explain it, and you try to understand it rationally, and then you just have to step back and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Right, and to say, Lord, um, it, th- this is something that you have revealed to us. We don't fully understand it, but it seems pretty amazing. And what you see is that the first Christians, actually the doctrine of the Trinity, really came out of those early days of faith and worship. That um, there was this belief in Jesus, this calling of Jesus as Lord was one of the first confessions of faith. And then following that, following at Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the sense in which the Holy Spirit is God as well. And the early Christians believed that and knew that and they exclaimed that in worship and in what we would call a doxology. Some of the earliest mentions of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Scripture are in this um, exclamation of praise. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as we say in worship, especially at the end of our psalms. Though that is in in worship, um, that is in Scripture, that um, doctrine of the Trinity, how do they all fit together and yet are one God and yet three persons, is still a mystery, and yet we see it in Scripture, and we see it first and foremost in worship and in praise. And then along with that also, we talked about how the Holy Spirit himself is not an it. I kind of have this pet peeve. People will say it, it's the Holy Spirit, as if 
um, the Holy Spirit is not a person. And one of the things about the doctrine of the Trinity is we talk about the three persons united as one, one God. The Holy Spirit is a he. The Holy Spirit is a person living, active, um, just like the Father is a person, just like the Son is a person. And so that's something we forget simply because the Holy Spirit, he's hard to contain. It's hard to think, how is he a separate person, a distinct person, and yet one unified? Um, so we talked about the Trinity the first day, the, our second week. We talked about creation and the role of the Holy Spirit at creation. In Genesis 1, you see the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. And out of the waters, through the word and through the spirit, God calls forth all that we know of as creation. God calls forth all that is. And the Holy Spirit has this role in bringing forth something out of nothing. And that that breath of life that is the breath of God can be understood as being the Holy Spirit seen in the Old Testament. And we talked about how for us as human beings made in the image of God, we delight to create things. We delight to make things. Even if you don't think of yourself as an artist or a creative type, you're always making, um, if you're a lawyer, you're making briefs. If you're an accountant, you're making really good tax returns. If you're this, you're making something really like this. And um, in that creativity, in that productivity, we are um, showing forth that we are made in God's image, that we're trying to imitate our Father in heaven. And the Holy Spirit has a role in that, in generating these beautiful and good things um, through the works of our hands. And that has import and meaning for us as Christians as well, because it's the Holy Spirit that generates within us good works, um, the fruit of faith. Okay, so that was week two. Week number three, we talked about three different kinds of people in the Old Testament who are anointed with the Holy Spirit, prophets, priests, and kings, and they're anointed specifically for leadership within the people of Israel. God gives them a special purpose, um, knowing that they are mere humans, knowing that his people um, need to be close to him and really need to be ruled by him. They're his stewards of his people. And you see all throughout the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit empowers those three types of people for those specific purposes. And then we saw how that empowerment of those three types of people really is culminated in the anointing that's upon Jesus Christ, who is the true prophet, the true king, the true priest, our great high priest, as it says in Hebrews. And even the word Messiah in Hebrew means anointed one. Jesus Christ is the one on whom the Holy Spirit has fallen and rested for, for, um, for in a new way and for a specific purpose. And we try to understand that and we say, does the Holy Spirit rest on Jesus? Here's one of those Trinitarian questions that's mind-boggling. You see the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus at his baptism. All of the Gospels talk about the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus. Does that happen because Jesus needs the Holy Spirit to empower him to do the miraculous works that he's then going to do during his earthly ministry? And I would say there isn't any one definitive orthodox answer on this. But I would say no, because Jesus is fully God and fully man, and not just fully man, but perfect, perfectly human, um, able to do more than any one of us could on our own. And so the, the presence of the Holy Spirit upon him is almost more like a sign, a sign of what God is going to do in and through him, of how every one of us in faith uh, are in Christ, and therefore the inheritance of the Holy Spirit is ours as well as we are in Christ. That anointing of the Holy Spirit belongs to us too, simply because we are hidden in Christ by faith. Um, okay, so any questions about that? That was classes one through three. I've got two more, and I still look, I'll take a deep breath. And um, 
Anyone want to ask anything about that? Okay. Uh, so two weeks ago, we talked about Pentecost. Oh, just that. And the um, <laughs> baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about what, that, what, what happened in the first century at Pentecost, those 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection. What was that event? There, the Holy Spirit was coming down as promised by the Father. And we're going to talk about the promise of the Father coming down in great power upon every one of those disciples. And you hear this language, it's a language of revelation, a language that you see in the Old Testament when Ezekiel has a vision of God Almighty and he doesn't have the language. Human language cannot contain what it is that he sees. And he uses the language of analogy there. Isaiah uses it as well in his vision in Isaiah 6. It is as though, it was as if, and you see that in Acts 2, um, there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and tongues, like tongues of fire, fell down upon the disciples. Um, What is happening to them is um, the manifestation of God himself upon them, from outside of them, through their faith in Jesus Christ, now empowering them beyond their own human abilities to be able to do something that will give glory to God, essentially, to speak in these languages that they've never had the opportunity to learn, so that all of those people gathered in Jerusalem for the feast would be able to hear the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us and believe. And they would hear that news in the language that they spoke from the cradle. And so you see in that miracle, in that work, the Holy Spirit is not taking center stage. The Holy Spirit is not drawing attention to himself. Rather, he's taking a step back and spotlighting Jesus. And that's one of the characteristics you always see of the Holy Spirit. Whenever um, the Holy Spirit is um, showing off, and I do think the Holy Spirit, I think God likes to show off through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But the whole purpose of that is not so that individuals would get glory or so even the Holy Spirit would get glory, but the Holy Spirit is always giving glory to the Son, to Jesus Christ, and spotlighting Jesus so that people might look to him and be saved, even as it says in John 3.17, that idea of looking up to the serpent in the wilderness that Moses held up. So we talked about Holy Spirit baptism for us then today, and what does that mean? What you see in the book of Acts is that there is no one formula. The, um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes about in concert with um, baptism by water and specifically through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot have the Holy Spirit and be empowered by the Holy Spirit in the way that the disciples and the church is called to be empowered by the Holy Spirit unless you have faith in Jesus Christ. The two go hand in hand. But what you don't see is that there's this stage. Um, There are some modes of thought, especially from the Wesleyan tradition, that the Holy Spirit is given to Christians. This is I'm saying this is false, and I'm saying this is not scriptural, but that the Holy Spirit is given to Christians as they get higher and higher up. As we get holier, this is the idea, we get more of God's Holy Spirit. Well, that's just patently false, because it is God's grace from outside of us that makes us holy. It's faith in Jesus Christ that makes us these vessels ready to receive the Holy Spirit. And so it's not a first water baptism, then Holy Spirit baptism formula. Rather, what you see in the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit comes when the Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit comes as a result of believing in Jesus. And you see that especially in chapter 10 with Cornelius and his family. Peter preaches to them. They have the Holy Spirit first. And then Peter says, well, they're Gentiles. We shouldn't baptize them. 
but clearly they believe in Jesus and God has granted them his own Holy Spirit, just like he granted his Holy Spirit to us who are good Jews who've believed in Jesus. Well, surely we must then um, baptize them with water in the name of Jesus. We cannot withhold water baptism from them. And so for those traditions that want to make it kind of an extra in into the Christian world, that's a, a wrong usage of baptism in the Holy Spirit. But what we can say about it is anyone who believes in Jesus, um, for us, the Holy Spirit is ours by right, by God's granting of his grace in Jesus Christ comes hand in hand. And so if you're ever doubtful, do I have the Holy Spirit? Just ask God. Just say, do I have the Holy Spirit? I would really like some Holy Spirit. I would really like for your Holy Spirit to empower me in this way so that I stop lying or so that I stop speeding or so that I can do this thing that's beyond me that will give you glory. Um, And God delights to hear that prayer as we ask it. He delights to answer it. And the thing about us is though we are vessels for his Holy Spirit, we leak, right? And so we can ask again and again and again and say, I would like some more, please. I would like some more of you in my life, please. So we talked about that with Pentecost. Last week we looked at the Holy Spirit as another advocate about Jesus in John 14 through 16 promising his disciples that in his departure he would send, he would not leave them as orphans, but he would send another advocate one who would speak on their behalf, who would give them insight into the truth about Jesus, and then who would cause them beyond their own abilities to speak the truth about Jesus, to bear witness to him in law courts, um, when they were brought before authorities, when they were put on trial, when they were persecuted, when they were under pressure. And that's this promise that God will not leave us abandoned. He doesn't leave us without knowing how to obey him, how to glorify him, and how to bear witness to his name. Um, So we talked about that last week. This week, finally, number six, this week we're talking about the promised Holy Spirit. We're going to look specifically at some of these passages from St. Paul's letters that talk about this guarantee, how the Holy Spirit is like a down payment of what's to come. So we'll look at um, what that means for us today in this life, as day by day, walking by faith, and what it means for us throughout eternity. All good things. Granted. Um, so the promised Holy Spirit is the guarantee of eternal life. We'll see why. Looking back, um, that idea of promise, looking back throughout the Old Testament, you see many promises that God makes to his people. And we're going to see by the end of today how these promises, some of them, have their fulfillment in the way the Holy Spirit is given, um, in the promise for the last day for all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, who are united through faith in Abraham. And Paul in Galatians um, talks a lot about, and for those of you who are going through Galatians with me on Fridays, Paul talks a lot about our unity in Christ. Um, as Jew and Gentile, as those who are born biologically from Abraham and those who are not, we're actually united into one church, the body of Christ, simply through faith and not because of any works or anything we do on our own. As we're united in Christ, as we are one in Christ, as we call ourselves by the name of Jesus Christ in faith, the promises that God made to Abraham specifically are available to us as well. And I'm just highlighting a couple of these promises the promise of multiplication, that he would have many, many offspring, um, and that his offspring would be many nations. Um, There's a promise that God makes to Abraham of a place, and for him, he makes it very specific, the promised land. In Canaan, he said that Abraham would possess that land. 
Um, but that promise of a place is actually fulfilled for us as Christians in a different way. And we'll talk about what that means. Um, the Lord says to Abraham that he would be a blessing to many nations. Um, he says also that he would have this covenanted relationship with Almighty God. Um, and so we'll look a little bit at that. He also talks about being with Abraham. And this is something that carries all throughout Scripture. I won't do that. I can do a whole different class on this thing called the Emmanuel Principle. And I've done that before around Christmas. It's this idea that God actually desires to be with us. Um, I don't know if you have those friends who say they're your friends, but they don't want to spend time with you. And you're like, well, I guess you're not my friend. Friends spend time with each other. And God is reaching out to Abraham and saying, I am your friend, and I will spend time with you and your offspring. I will be in relationship with you. And that being with is this fellowship, this sweet fellowship that we have with the Lord. And, of course, sin obstructs that fellowship. But part of God's purposes is to remove the obstacle of sin, not just so that we can be forgiven from guilt and shame and have eternal life instead of eternal death, but also so we can actually be with God. We get to hang out with God because of the cross and resurrection. Um, So that promise, though, goes all the way back through to the very beginning of the Old Testament. And it's also fulfilled in, um, in Jesus Christ, of course. So here's just a little glimpse into some of these promises in Genesis 12. The Lord saying to Abram that he will make him a great nation. He will bless him and make his name great so that he will be a blessing. Um, There's a blessing for those who bless and a curse for those who dishonor um, Abraham. And then in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Um, And then there's this promise of land. What you see in Galatians is that Paul points out that this promise, these promises to Abraham are actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Paul makes this argument based on the singular of offspring. To your offspring, not to the thousands, to the one. And there's only one man who ever lived who was a true Israelite, the truly obedient son of Abraham, who obeyed all of the law perfectly. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. So the promises of Abraham are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see of this um, great nation that's made great not just through one ethnicity but through many ethnicities, many nations joined together in one. Um, And then this blessing um, that's given and imparted out through Jesus Christ to many. And then also this promise of a place. Not necessarily the promised land in Israel right now, but the promise of a place. So um, as we talk, we're going to keep going, but there are these promises, these good promises in the Old Testament that the Lord makes to Abraham. They are fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit has a role in that. The Holy Spirit is part of the fulfillment of that promise to us day by day, even as that promise is meant to be fulfilled throughout all eternity. Okay, any thoughts about that? I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to take a back seat, actually, right now. And I want to introduce to you um, Lydia Nace. Lydia, do you want to come on up here? Lydia is actually, um, she is delightful, and she's um, studying at Beeson Divinity School right now. She's in the second year of her Master's of Divinity. And so she's going to talk to us a little bit about Luke 11. Lydia, do you want to take it away? Sure. Okay. So does someone want to read the passage? Sure. Great, thanks. Uh, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. It will be opened to you. For everyone who seeks, who asks, receives. 
and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how, good, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Okay, awesome, thank you. Okay, so this is coming um, where the disciples say, Jesus teaches how to pray. He's like, okay, I'll do it. So he starts out with the Lord's Prayer and then tells a parable and then goes into this. And a lot of times when Jesus talks, afterwards his disciples are like, we had no idea what you were saying. That was very cryptic. Please explain it to us. I don't think this is one of those times, which I'm thankful that Deborah gave me this passage instead of a different one. I think this one's pretty straightforward. Um, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And then he goes into more specifics, talking about a father and a son and comparing that to God with us. And so talking about a father and a son, very straightforward. If a child comes to his father and says, this is something I need. I actually need it. It's food. I'm not saying I need a car. I'm saying I need food. The father's going to give it to their child, and they're going to be happy to do that. In the same way, when we ask God for the Holy Spirit, he knows that that's something that we need, um, that it's something vital to our spiritual health. And so he's happy to give it to us. He's not playing trick-or-treat. It's not like, oh, please give me this. Boo, I'm going to give you something totally poisonous instead. <laughs> he's like, I want to give you what you're asking for because I know it's a good thing and I know that you need it. And I think something that Deborah's hit on the past five weeks that's really important to remember in this is that when we ask for the Holy Spirit, we're not asking for some spiritual, vague sort of thing. We're asking for the Holy Spirit, a specific person with specific roles to play in our lives, um, testifying with our spirit that we're children of God and reminding us of the truth and pointing to Christ. So it's not this, this weird, vague thing that we're asking for. It's very specific. It's the truth of the gospel, and God wants to give us the reminder of that and empowerment through the spirit. Thank you so much, Lydia. That was great. Anyone have any questions for Lydia? Um, the, um, also, one thing, too, to note about Luke in this particular passage, the other passages that tell about this story, ask, seek, knock, from Matthew, um, they don't say specifically, ask the Father for the Holy Spirit. And I think what's interesting about the other versions in Matthew of this same moment where Jesus is teaching them is it makes it sound like we can ask God for a blank check. Um, and I, I mean, go for it, but if it's not something you need, he might not give it to you. In fact, he probably won't. But Luke gets even more specific because he's like, the best thing you can ask for, the thing you most need is actually God himself. And God himself delights to give himself to us. And we see that through Jesus, and we see that in our lives as Christians through the Holy Spirit. So going back to Acts chapter 2, I just wanted to point out that this promise, this promise of this good gift that the Father delights to give to his children is something that in fact is realized and made manifest at Pentecost. And um, when Peter gets up and tries to explain what's going on as the apostles are all speaking these multiple different tongues, he points to this last day, he points to this prophecy uttered by the prophet Joel in which God promised and said that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh 
his sons and his daughters shall prophesy. Um, and you see this promise there fulfilled at Pentecost. It's as though Peter is saying, um, that which God has promised, he's now fulfilling right now. That's why this is so amazing. That's why you're seeing what you're seeing, and it's kind of wild and crazy. Um, so this, um, this Acts 2, the Pentecost moment, that is the fulfillment of this promise of the Holy Spirit now to be available to God's people in a new way. Not just for those who have a specific task or purpose, like prophets, priests, and kings, or artists, but also for anyone, for all people who believe in Jesus. And so what is the Holy Spirit? We talked about this a little bit last week. Um, But who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is an advocate or a helper to be with us, the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is really the presence of God himself. Um, Because in Jesus, when Jesus is talking about the promise that he would send the Holy Spirit once he ascends to the Father, he talks about this um, way in which God the Father and God the Son will come to the believer in Jesus and make their home with him. You see, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Do you hear that with um, that we talked about, just touched on very briefly about the Emmanuel principle? God with us. Um, that God will be with us even in Jesus' bodily absence. God sends his own Holy Spirit to come, to be with us, to fill us, to spring up within us, and to empower us from beyond ourselves. So you see that promise, again, made very explicit by Jesus in John 14 and then fulfilled, of course, at Pentecost. And so um, just moving on, there's something that Paul um, likes to talk about, and this is where we were going. Paul loves to talk about the Holy Spirit specifically as the guarantee of, of our inheritance as sons and daughters and heirs in Christ. Um, so does anyone want to read this passage from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14? Yeah, go ahead, DeWitt. In him we have obtained inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it through the praise of his glory. What do you all notice about this passage? Do you see anything about it? Does anything strike you about it based on what we've been talking about? When do we get the inheritance? When we believe. When we believe, yeah. Do we have it all at once? Yes. We do. In name, we possess it all at once. Do we possess it all at once in reality, or do we have to wait for part of it? We do have to wait for part of it, don't we? Um, But what do we have instead as a sign of what's coming to us? It's a guarantee. This word is Arabon in the Greek, and I think our English word doesn't quite do it justice. So we think of a guarantee as, and here's a little dictionary definition for you, a formal promise or assurance, usually in writing, that certain conditions will be fulfilled, especially that a product will be repaired or replaced, if not of specific quality and durability, right? A warranty. How many of you have a drawer full of warranties? (laughs) 
If you're like me, you stash them somewhere and then you lose them. And you cannot, you know you kept them, but you cannot find them when the thing breaks. And you actually don't have time to mail the thing back to the place and get the other thing because you just don't have time for it. So you go out and buy a new one, right? So how many of us actually use the warranty? None of us. But with this warranty, this idea of guarantee, it's actually a better word for the Greek word would be down payment. Just like when you're going to buy a house and you put some money down and you know that the house doesn't yet belong to you, but it does. It's yours in name and yet over the years, um, it will take 20 years before you receive the actual title to, is it called a title when it's a home too? Yeah, I know that with my car, deed. Yeah, there we go. I have to look at the lawyer. Help me. Um, but, yeah, so the deed, we don't actually receive the deed, do you, until it's paid in full. And yet there's this guarantee, this down payment, this promise that you will pay all in full. Well, it's as though the Lord has bought a house from us. He's given us the down payment, um, and yet the best is still yet to come. This down payment is um, a foretaste of all of the goodness that God is bringing to us in Jesus Christ. This down payment is just the very little beginning bit of all of what God has for us. So we see this word guarantee again. We see it, Paul uses it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and then also again in chapter 4 and chapter 1. He says, um, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, as a promise of what's to come. And then we see this also in chapter 4, and actually I highlighted the wrong, a little bit of the wrong bit, but look, um, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this passage I love because it really touches on our day by day existence as Christians, living in light of what will come and with the guarantee, the down payment right now of the gift of the Holy Spirit day by day. Day by day, our outer self, our flesh, literally, I mean, talk about the wrinkles and the wide hairs and the illness and the aches and pains and the things that don't go away and don't ever seem to get healed. Those things, that's part of this outer self that's wasting away. That's also the sinful flesh in us that we just can't seem to shake. That I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I yelled at him. I can't believe I did the thing that I knew I didn't want to do, and here I've done it again. That frustration with our sinful flesh, that is all a part of the outward self that's wasting away. The inner self is the new Christian, the new person in Jesus Christ, the new Deborah. Um, the new self, the inner self, is being renewed day by day by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. And again, that's part of being in Christ in faith. And part of that being in Christ in faith has the big picture, being in Christ. He is our salvation, and we have looked to him for our forgiveness from sin and, and our release from death. But it's also a momentary, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, minute, crying out, help to God and him in his own way in the moment rescuing us supernaturally whether it's simply giving us the grace to forgive someone else which is actually a really big thing and not a simple thing whether it's him um, giving us new skills and gifts of the Holy Spirit whether it's him giving us other fruit of the Holy Spirit that kindness that does not come naturally but then suddenly is there despite ourselves um, so we see that this, this light momentary affliction the pains and sorrows and sufferings 
of the flesh and of um, our very limited mortality. They are affliction, and yet they are preparing us for the eternal weight of glory, which is beyond anything to be compared. And he talks about how this is not taking off one thing, but rather clothing ourselves in eternity, and that God will do that for us at the last day. And he says that God has prepared us for this reclothing, this new clothing in immortality with an immortal body, with um, our life um, to be lived with him eternally. He talks about this, and he said that the Holy Spirit given to us day by day is the guarantee, the assurance of what's to come. In light of us being, um, in light of what the, we're going to talk about what the inheritance is, but I just want to touch also on this word heirs. So if we have an inheritance coming and the Holy Spirit is the down payment or the guarantee, then who are the heirs? We talked about this a little bit as sons of Abraham, but we see in Romans and in Galatians, Paul makes it so clear that the heirs are all of those um, who are Abraham's offspring, who are heirs according to the promise and not according to the flesh, who are heirs in Jesus Christ through faith in him, and not because of anything we do, not because of our ability to obey the law, because we cannot obey the law, not because of our ethnic, biological um, relationship with Abraham. Um, So not just the Jews, but simply the Jews in faith in Jesus, and all Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ are heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. And the Holy Spirit has a role in this. The Holy Spirit is a sign for us that we are an heir. We talked about this a little bit on Friday in Bible study, right? This crying out to God, being able to say, Abba, Father, I need your help. God Almighty, I need your help. Just like a child would call out to his papa or daddy, I need your help right now in this hour. I need your help. And that cry for help, it's actually the Holy Spirit that moves us to cry for help, that moves us to say, I have a Father in heaven who loves me. And that, that willingness to cry out, that's actually an act of faith, um, just as it is an act of faith to get down on our knees and repent of our sins. And so um, we are heirs because we call out Father. Um, heirs are also those who are rich in faith and sometimes impoverished in the world. Here we see that James is juxtaposing that idea of being rich spiritually um, sometimes very often goes along with being impoverished materially because of needing to call out even more for God's help and his salvation. And then again, here we see the Ephesian elders are included as heirs. Paul includes them as heirs when he talks about them in Acts 20. (coughs) Heirs through faith. Do you see how many times I could find this in Scripture? I won't go through all of them. Well, what is the inheritance? The inheritance is promised. It comes to Abraham by a promise, and it comes to us by a promise through Christ. And what is it? It's something unseen. It's something that we wait for eagerly. It's something unseen, but it's something that we hope for and that we have good reason to hope for. And that inheritance involves what we talked about at the very beginning. It involves that multiplication that many, many, many are now one in Jesus Christ. There is that unity of a community. Um, If you've ever wanted to really belong to a community, really belong to a group of people, and we each one of us have that longing to belong somewhere. And in Jesus Christ, though we're from many different backgrounds, though we're from many different perspectives, 
all of us in faith are um, one in Jesus Christ. And that's um, through faith in Jesus Christ and that's by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that multiplication that I talked about first and foremost, that's for us as believers in Jesus. I also talked about the blessing to many nations and many nations being united into one. And you'll see where that comes in. Um, But I also wanted to highlight this place. Remember, we talked about the promised land being promised to Abraham. He, he saw it in part. Um, he saw even his descendants only saw it in part because the real fulfillment of this promise of a place to Abraham was actually um, that God would provide a place for all those who belong to Jesus in him. And the place is not, I hate to say it, forgive me if you're a Zionist, it's not Israel. It's not Jerusalem. We don't know what will happen with Jerusalem in this life. But when Jesus returns, there's a new place um, that God has prepared for all of those who believe in Jesus. And the place is one that we see about in Revelation um, chapter 21. Does anybody want to read Revelation 21? I know the words are a little bit smaller. Go ahead. Then I saw a great yeah, go for it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. What a vision. <clears throat> what a vision. This is a vision of the new Jerusalem. This is the place that God has prepared for us. He's not going to whisk us away off into this um, bodiless existence, sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp. How boring and awful. Actually, it's that God will come down to earth and totally remake earth. Um, we won't be amaterial. We won't be simply spiritual and not material. It's actually, that all of the fallenness of this material um, will be completely remade and renewed in Jesus Christ. That is the vision. The place is here. The place is on earth, but on the new earth, in the new Jerusalem. The place is in the place of worship. Um, it's no, no accident that it's new Jerusalem. There, that idea of God with us um, eternally. There, Christ is on his throne, reigning over all creation for all eternity. And we will be with him there. We will um, be many, all united together in one faith um, in Jesus Christ. And um, we will be there eternally. There will be no more suffering or sorrow or dying or crying. We will be eternally blessed 
with Jesus. This is our fate as Christians. This is the end of the story. Um, I sometimes like to read the ends of stories because um, I don't get a lot of time to read, and so if I'm reading a novel and it's really long, I need to get to the end to see if it's worth the investment. (laughs) It's terrible. And because if it's not, then I'll go read another book. And I, I don't always like, I mean, I do like, sometimes I like sad endings. So sometimes I'll keep reading if it's a sad ending. But I need to see that it's going to be worth my time. And I think with, um, with that, there's another story that I've been familiar with recently. It's called Big Fish. It was a novel written in 1998 by Daniel Wallace, who's actually, I believe, a graduate of um, Altamont. Um, so right here from Birmingham. And in his story, he talks about this his father figure who tells all of these embellished stories, who lives big, who lives generously and lovingly, um, kind of miraculously he does this, so much so that the son assumes as an adult the worst. He assumes the worst of his traveling salesman father. Um, and in fact, he finds out the real true story is far better than any of the made-up stories, that the father really was um, humble and modest and very, very generous and saved a whole town and all this stuff. But the reason the father was able to live the way he was able to live was because someone told him very young and early um, what the end of his life would be. There was this sort of supernatural breaking in. Again, this is a fantastical book. Supernatural breaking in where someone told him through a magic ball what his death would be like. And once he knew what his death would be like, he was able to live no longer in fear. And I think for us as Christians, his story is like our story in that we know the end of the story. We know that this is our end. This is our inheritance at the last day. And so day by day when things are difficult, um, when we're laboring under sin or sorrow or suffering, we can remember and recall that we're heirs in Jesus Christ. And then we can call upon the Holy Spirit. We can call upon the Father and call out, Abba, Father, help me. I know the end, but I need courage for today to be able to live, um, to be able to give you thanks, to have more of you and less of me. Um, And so, indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance in Jesus Christ. We have a blessing. And so I'm going to just pray these um, prayers of blessing for us in closing because they talk about our inheritance. So let's pray. By the power of the Holy Spirit, may you be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. And indeed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for um, all of your good gifts to us. And we thank you, Father, especially for the good gift of the Holy Spirit, whom you delight to give to your sons and daughters who are heirs in Jesus, who have an inheritance waiting for us. And so we ask, give us indeed more of you in our lives. Give us that down payment of your Holy Spirit, that spirit of truth welling up within us, refreshing us and renewing us 
today and the next day and the next day after that and all of the days together until you return. And so we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.